Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the book of Exodus. Enjoy the message. Alrighty, so we've got to Exodus chapter 25, um, and in some ways this could be called the 11th commandment. Because uh, Moses is drawn up at one more time onto the mountain, Mount Sinai, which we know now is the mountain of God. And, uh, and some scholars have actually calculated how many times Moses went up and down. And they say that there were seven times that he went both up and down. Now, I don't know if you've been up and down a mountain maybe even once. But I reckon that this was probably the original CrossFit box on Mount Sinai. Because Moses must have been super fit at this moment. Hey, Billy? All right. So um, Moses, this is his fifth time to go back up the mountain. We must not forget that this is a significant mountain. This is a huge mountain. And God has descended on Mount Sinai to speak both to Moses and to the people of Israel And the people of Israel are camped at the foot of the mountain. And Moses is called to journey all the way to the top. And, uh, and we don't know the details of how long it took or how long it took to get up and how long it took to get down. But what we do know is that this is the fifth time that he goes up. So before we get to chapter 25, let's just read how chapter 24 ends as a reminder and give us a little bit of context. So here we go, verse 16. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. Let's not pass over that statement too fast. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. It's no wonder there is lightning and smoke and cloud and thunder. And the cloud, it goes on, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, I hope you're hearing some creation echoes. On the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of all the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. You really get a sense that heaven has come to earth. God's glory has descended on Mount Sinai. The glory cloud is covering Sinai. The mountain itself has been transformed into a type of temple. There have been three parts to it. There's the lower footing where the Israelites dwell. Then there's the, the kind of central part, the middle part, where only the, the elders could go with Moses. And only Moses could go into the holy of holy places. But now Moses is there for 40 days. And we're going to be looking this morning at what was Moses doing up on the mountain. And then next Sunday, we're going to ask, well, what were the people of Israel doing while Moses was up on the mountain? I think you know a little bit about what they were doing. But we'll get there in chapter 32. But today really is all about what was Moses doing there for 40 days and for 40 nights. Well, very simply, what he does is he listens. He does a whole lot of listening and a whole lot of receiving. 
Because what we're going to see is everything recorded from chapter 25 to 31 and then from 35 to 40 are all about the building of the tabernacle, the building of the tent of God, the house of God. And so what Moses is doing, he's, he's receiving the law, he's receiving the tablets, the law written on stone, the word, and he's receiving the instructions for the tabernacle, which would be their worship. And so we have these two wonderful foundational elements that will sustain the people of God throughout all history, throughout all time, the word of God and the worship of God. And so Moses is up there receiving these important instructions, and the instructions are incredibly detailed. And it really, to be honest with you, makes for very boring reading. And so we're not going to read all of it because it would take us through to the afternoon. But what I do want you to notice and to know is that the details are very long, they are incredibly specific, and they are not very exciting. God is incredibly precise. And in a sense, because he's talking about something they need to build, there is a picture of God as, an, as a master architect or a master builder. And the point of the, all the specifics and all the details is that if you miss a step, you could die. So it's, it's really important that he listens carefully and that he records carefully. It reminded me of, you know, you watch... I don't know if you watch MasterChef. MasterChef Australia is probably one of my favorite MasterChefs. And, uh, and, and, and the tense moment when they get given those long recipes from the experts, and then these amateur cooks have got to run to their tables, and they've got to replicate the, the, the food or the, or the baking goods that were given to them. And they've got the recipe, and it's not just one page. It's pages and pages and pages, and they've got to follow it Line by line. Because if you miss one step, it's a flop. And in a sense, this is what's happening here. Moses has gone up the mountain and he's received line after line after line after line. Incredible detail about what this tent, this tabernacle, this dwelling place for God should be like. And if you miss one step, it's not a flop, you're dead. So let's read a little bit of it. Exodus 25 verse 1. We're going to read to verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution, a collection. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, Tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you. Concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, you shall make it. And then at the end of chapter 25, verse 40, it reiterates the pattern, according to the pattern. In chapter 26, we see the same wording, according to the pattern. In chapter 27, according to the pattern. So what is Moses 
and the people of Israel to build. Well, verse 8, have a look there with me again. Let them make me a sanctuary. Now, the, the scriptures use these words interchangeably, sanctuary and tabernacle and tent. Because literally, on the ground, once you got to it, it looked like a tent, right? It was tent-like. And so, in a sense, these were uh, very normal. This was a very normal experience because at this particular point, remember the Israelites have been rescued. They don't have a home. They don't have a city. They don't have infrastructure. They are nomads. They are travelers. They are sojourners. And so they need to be able to pack things up and move on. And so they have a tent. A tent. Now, when you read the word sanctuary, I'm, I'm thinking you don't think immediately of a tent, all right? I think when you hear the word sanctuary, you're thinking St. Paul's Cathedral in London. You're thinking of a palace. But what this chapter shows us and makes very clear is that God is asking not for a palace, but for a tent. Just let that sink in for a minute. The God of Sinai, the God of the universe, the Almighty God, is not asking Israel to build him a castle or a St. Paul's Cathedral, but a tent. A tent, really? Imagine Moses, all the glory, all the splendor, all the sights and sounds. He's like, okay, I'm going to build something. For, I'm going to build a sanctuary. Okay, give me the details. What? A tent. Yes, a tent. A humble tent. Yet, on the other hand, so that's the one part of it. It's a tent. Yet, on the other hand, this is going to be the most spectacular tent you've ever seen. Now, if you know me, I don't like camping, right? But I go on a camp every now and then, and I get, I get the bungalow, all right? So I don't really camp. I do the chalet thing. But I know some of you guys, also, some of you put up your hand, and you're like, oh, we love tenting. And then I come to your campsite, and I'm like, that's not a tent. That's a caravan. Or one of those fancy trailers that, like a transformer, it transforms into like a B&B. And so what we see here is this, this simple, humble tent, but at the same time, it is magnificent. It is covered with gold and silver and precious stones and the most fine linen and wood and twine, and it's spectacular. So which is it then? Well, it's a simple tent, but it's an extremely beautiful, simple tent. And the question I ask myself is, why? Why? Why, why, why the simplicity, yet the beauty? Why the specific details? Well, let's look a little bit closer at what we find here. If we go back into Exodus 25 through 31, we, we see that God is into details. God is in the details. God is into details. So the first thing we notice is the Ark of the Covenant. He wants there to be some furniture in this glorious tent. And one of the most important furniture pieces is this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. We read this in verse 10. You shall make an ark of acacia wood. Verse 11, you shall overlay it with pure gold. You shall cast four rings 
of gold for it. And you should put the poles into the rings of the ark to carry it. In other words, you're not allowed to touch this thing. It is holy. So you've got to carry it by poles. Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, two huge angel statues. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Notice that this is a spectacular ark. But it's a mobile ark. It's designed to be moved, to be carried in a particular way. Not in any way, but in a very particular way. Not only are we seeing here that God is in the details, there's this humility, but there's this specificity. The, the, the point of this is actually, don't you dare miss a step. And we begin to get the feeling that actually this is echoes of what we've heard earlier on, and that is you need to observe all that God says. Don't, you, you can't just pick and choose the bits you want. When God speaks, we hear all that he has to say to us. And so we got the ark, a very important piece of furniture that's to go into this tent where God wants to dwell. We know that there's also a table, a very specific table for bread, the bread of unle unleavened bread and, and the bread of presence. And that's a, there's a whole lot of instructions about that. Then there's the golden lampstand, and there's a whole lot of instructions about that. And then there's the tabernacle itself, the actual tent itself. Look at this in verse 31 of chapter 26. And you shall make a veil of blue... All right, not green. No, it must be blue. And purple, not red, purple. And scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim, angels, skillfully worked into it. So these are the curtains. These, these are the, the kind of the sides of the tent. And they are to be beautiful masterpiece tapestries. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. So you've got a four-sided tent that is beautiful. But not only is the tent to be decorated with splendor, but so too the priestly garments. And it goes into lots of details. And I'm just going to read a little bit here from chapter 28, verses 4. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Down to verse 40. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. Now, I, I mean, I read all of this, and I've saved you from reading all of the details, and it is a lot of detail. But the question I was left asking is, why all the specific patterns? Why all the extravagant materials? And when we apply our minds to all of Scripture, this particular passage begins to make sense. Because what we see here is that the tabernacle here, this, this tent of meeting, is to be a picture of heaven on earth. Now, how do you picture that? How do you draw 
heaven on earth. I mean, we can try. And in a sense, what we see here is that this earthly tent was to be a copy of the heavenly tent. That in a sense, there is this heavenly house. The house of God is to be reflected in the tent of meeting. It was to be a copy. The throne room of God was to be photocopied, in a sense, on earth. Now, you might think, well, where do you get that from? Well, the Bible, Hebrews 8 verse 5, tells us this, that they, the people of Israel, the priests, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly thing. So the priests who serve in the tabernacle, in the tent or in the temple, it's really just a copy what they're doing. What they're serving, what you see is a copy and a shadow of eternal things, of heavenly things. Then he goes on and he reminds us, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. In other words, we're beginning to see that the pattern wasn't just a blueprint, but was a heavenly print. It was a heavenly print of the throne room of God that surpasses the glory that we could ever imagine that we're just seeing a fine, dimly illustrated picture of. That's why it has to be extravagant in its beauty. Yet at the same time, simple, and we're going to see why. But there's a further step that I think is going on here. The next step of what I think is going on here is that when you look at all the details, and if you had to have walked into that tent, if you had to walk into that specific tent today, you would look around you and you would say, this is the most beautiful garden I've ever seen. Because that's what's described there. And it's not just any garden. It's a reflection of the garden of gardens, the garden of Eden. And what we begin to realize is that that was the first tent, the first dwelling place of God. Where did God first dwell with man? God first dwelt with man in the Garden of Eden. In other words, the Garden of Eden was the first copy of heavenly things printed on earth. That's where God first dwelt with man. Eden was a piece of heaven on earth. And in that sense, the Garden of Eden was the first temple planted by God and patterned of heavenly things where God would display His glory. And Eden was. It was beautiful. And so the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, must reflect the Garden of Eden, which reflects the glory of God as seen in heaven. It was in Eden, like in the tent of meeting, where God's presence would dwell and God's glory would be seen. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to just walk us quickly through five stages of redemptive history where we see this motive, this theme of the temple unfold. And I want you to hang in with me, all right? I want you to hang in with me as we get to the end because there at the end, it will all make sense. So it all begins in the garden, in the Eden temple. God in the garden. In Genesis 2, have a look here quickly. And the Lord God planted a garden. 
It wasn't that it was part of creation. This was after creation. God planted a garden. He, he, he created the space, obviously, but this was a unique space. This was to the east of the garden. There was a unique space in the east that God had planted. I mean, you, you, sometimes we get landscapers in. Uh, we don't. But uh, some people do. And you, and you go and visit, or, you know, you watch, again, those house programs that I was telling you about a couple of weeks ago. You watch those house shows, you know, and you're like, whoa, look at that garden. Now imagine, imagine getting God to plant your garden. Imagine what that's going to look like. God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put this man that he formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. Verse 12, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stones are there. Notice the materials. Do you see the parallel with the tent of meeting, the gold and the onyx stones? And it goes on and he says in verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That's a priestly function. And so Adam is functioning like a priest in the temple garden, in the temple of God where God dwells. God has designed this spectacular garden where God will walk and talk with Adam and Eve and where the glory of God will fill this garden and Adam will serve as a temple priest to God intended. Now this, this point of Eden being a temple or a sanctuary is explicitly explained in Ezekiel chapter 28 where Ezekiel is prophesying against the prince of Tyre and he uses Adam-like language to describe Eden. I just want to read it to you quickly and then we'll move on. He says this concerning Adam, who is actually prophetically someone else. You were in Eden, he says, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, and beryl, and onyx. Notice all these same Materials, the materials of Eden are the materials you find in the tent or tabernacle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. This is in Eden. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. Eden was a temple built on a mountain. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. Verse 18, by the multitude of your iniquities. Now this is when Adam had sinned. In the unrighteousness of your trade, what did you do? You profaned your sanctuary. Sanctuary? Eden was a sanctuary? Yes, and it was built on a mountain. It was a temple-like garden. And then the, the story progresses, and so that's how we get to the mosaic tent. And then the mosaic tent, which we've seen and made the point already, God is in the details. God gathers his people to Sinai on the mountain of God, you see the parallels? There's the garden, there's the mountain, there's the glory, there's the presence of God, there's Moses, the priest, the mediator. And there he receives the details for the tent and the tabernacle and the, the ark and all these beautiful parts of furniture. But what was the big idea? 
Well, the big idea was verse 8, where he says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That's the point. God wants to dwell there. God wants to be with his people. The tent is to be a place of worship. And how can a holy God dwell with sinners? Well, the only way is that at the heart of the tent would be an altar where there would be sacrifices. And the sacrifices would mediate on behalf of the people and between the people and God. And so God could dwell. God could dwell in their midst if there was the tent of meeting, if there was a temple, if there was a dwelling place, then God could dwell. Notice that it's to be a mobile tent. In other words, God wants to travel with these people. And then the story develops further into our third stage. And we see that Israel, the people, have now been taken into the land of Canaan. Moses wandered in the wilderness for 40 years Eventually, Joshua takes them into the land of Canaan, and even there they get to wonder. And so this tent is moving around with them for hundreds of years, eventually to the point where Israel settles in the land of Jerusalem. And under King David, they experience a season of peace. And then one day, David, and this is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David, David looks around and he He's sitting in his luxurious palace. David, King David, is in his palace and he looks out his window and he sees the tent. And he's like, there's a discrepancy here. Look at what I'm living in and look at what God dwells in. Check my dwelling place and check God's dwelling place. And so David decides, let's build a proper palace. Let's build God a permanent home. And do you know what God says? God says no. God says no. God comes to Nathan the prophet who serves on David and he says, okay, we, we, we can make an arrangement, but, but no, David, you're not going to do it. Your son will do it. Solomon will build me a house but actually he's going to build the house that I've wanted for you. Yes, your kingdom will reign forever. Your throne will go on forever. But I never really wanted a permanent house. Look at this. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read this. It says, this is God speaking. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Question mark. I mean, how big is it going to be? I have not lived, listen, this is God speaking. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And God's like, hey, that's what I've asked for. That's what I asked for. That's what I've designed. Verse 7, in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, this is not part of my instructions. And God is saying to David, no, you won't build me a house. I will build you a house. 
And only after David dies does David's son Solomon actually follow through. And Solomon does build a temple of brick and mortar. And the irony is they bring the mobile ark and they put the mobile ark now in a permanent temple. And Solomon's temple was huge. It was big. It was bold. It was beautiful. And all of the details of the tent are now reflected in this concrete masterpiece. Wouldn't have been concrete, but you know what I mean. Stone. And the irony of it is at the dedication of the temple, the the dedication after years of building this magnificent masterpiece, Listen to what Solomon says in 1 Kings 8 verse 27. He says this. It's almost like he's thinking to himself, but will God indeed dwell on earth, on the earth? Question mark. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. You get the sense that both God and Solomon knew that this temple was inadequate. At its best, it's merely a type, a copy. Because eventually the Israelites would fall back into their sinful ways. And then God would send the Assyrians and the Babylonians and they would invade Jerusalem. And when they invade Jerusalem, they would destroy the temple. And the temple was destroyed. It was an abomination. They erected their false pagan gods in the the temple of God. And then after the 70 years of exile, they would come back and they would rebuild a second temple, but it was never, ever really the same. And so the question we're left with here is, but God made a promise to David that he would build him a house. And now this house is destroyed. And the glory of God is no longer in the house. So has God's promise failed. And it's during this season where people are discouraged and they're not quite sure what God said he was going to build a house, but now this house is destroyed and we've tried to rebuild a second temple, but it's not, the glory of God has not come back. And so the prophets begin to speak and the prophets say things like this. Two examples, Isaiah 7 verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. You need a sign of encouragement. He's speaking to the people of God. They're so discouraged at this point. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. God with us. Yes, that's what we want. We we want another house. We want God to be with us. But What's this about a son? Yes, the offspring of David. And Amos, the prophet, would write into Amos 9 verse 11. In that day, he says, I will raise up the tent of David. Yes, that is what we want. We want the tent back. We want the house. We want God to dwell with us. The tent that is fallen, and there's iron, I mean, there's a play on words here because the tent of David is both his body as well as the building that represented David's era. The tent that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it. And all the people of Israel say, yes, Amos, that's what we want. And what happens? 
Well, it comes to pass. It does come to pass. The virgin conceives, and the virgin has a son, and the virgin calls his name Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. The son of David, the true son of David is born to Mary, and the son of David is raised up. Jesus, point number four, is the temple. Jesus is the house that God is building. God among us. In John 1 verse 14, the gospel begins and it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is tabernacle. It's that word. It's God in the flesh tabernacled among us. And what? And we've seen his glory. Everything that the temple existed for was the word and worship and tabernacling and the glory of God. All of that is found in Jesus. In other words, God's word to David never failed. God's word took on flesh. Jesus, the son of David, took on flesh and tabernacled amongst us. And we saw his glory. We saw the glory of God like we've never seen it before. Walking into that Old Testament tent and seeing Jesus. The the two do not compare. Jesus outshines the glory of that tent. The tabernacle of Christ. Jesus himself declared, I am the bread of heaven. Fulfilling the table of bread. He said, I am the light of the world fulfilling the golden lampstand. He said, if you believe in me from within, you will throw rivers of living water. The Ezekiel temple that flows like water, etc., etc., etc. Jesus becomes both the high priest and the offering. Jesus is the altar and the sacrifice. Let me submit to you. Behold, in Christ, the humility of a tent. And the glory of a tent. The simplicity. The condescension. God took on flesh. And yet we see his glory. Which is why Jesus said this in John 2. Destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, the second temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when that temple was destroyed, when Jesus was crucified, what happened in the second temple? The curtain was torn from top to bottom. Which is why Peter, the apostle of the early church, a Jew himself, would say this in Acts 2. And I'm bringing this all to a close. Brothers, he says, I may say to you with confidence about David, the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, we haven't forgotten David. We haven't forgotten David nor the promise to David. But here's the fulfillment he's saying. Being therefore a prophet, David, and knowing, knowing that God had sworn with an oath, a promise, to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. And they're going, but we don't have the throne. We, we need the kingdom. In order to have a throne, we need the kingdom. But now Peter's saying, no, no, we've misunderstood the prophecy. God has 
set one of his descendants on his throne. How? Verse 31. He foresaw, David foresaw, and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. The resurrection of the temple. Jesus is the temple. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, this temple, God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. God's promise of a renewed, restored, rebuilt temple, a house of prayer for all nations, Jesus said, has been raised up. It is Jesus Christ. And all who are joined to him through faith are part of that glorious temple. The fifth stage is God within us. Ephesians 2 verse 18, last text. For through him, through who? Through him, through Jesus. We both, who's both? Who's he talking about? Jew and Gentile. Both of them, both Jew and Gentile. Need a temple. Not, not, a, not a stone temple. <laughs> a Jesus temple. The Jews need a Jesus temple. They don't need a physical temple. They might build it, but that's not what they need. They need Jesus. The true temple. The only true place of worship. Through him, through Jesus, we both. Paul, Paul was a Jew. He knows this stuff. He's not. This isn't something new. This is. The truth, we both, Jew and Gentile, have what? Access. What language is that? That's priestly language. We have access to God. Why? Because now Jesus is the temple. Through him we have access. In one spirit to the Father. So then, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In Christ, there is a new house built, he says, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone of this new house, in whom the whole structure, this is temple language, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So Jesus and the church, Jesus the cornerstone, the church, the living stones, are being built together into a temple. We are that temple, church, in whom you also are being built together, here's the purpose, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Wow. The progression from Eden, God in the garden, to God within us. Without Jesus, we do not have the presence of God. I hope that you are astonished at what Christ has accomplished for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. This is really a detailed passage, and I trust and pray that as we've zoomed out, we've seen the bigger picture. Yes, there's finer details, but as we've zoomed out, there's the big picture, the ultimate story. 
We thank you that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He's the foundation. And through him we have access. Through his body. His body was the curtain that was torn for us. Giving us access into the holy place. So that just like Moses, we can go up the mountain into the very presence of God. 